Amen. As we take our seats together, I do want to give a very warm welcome to the Reverend John Greer this evening, and we also welcome Mrs. Greer to the service tonight as well. And we are so privileged and so glad to have our brother to come and to minister in this special week of ministry meetings. We have little cards printed for the meetings. We've been giving them out, and they do give you the theme for the week, Revival Highlights in Ezra. And this evening, the subject is the God of Revival. If you don't have one of these little cards, do pick them up as you leave the church this evening, and it will remind you each night of the meetings, and we'll give you the title uh, for each evening. But as the Reverend Greer would now come to minister God's word, we trust that he will know the blessing and the help of the Lord. Thank you. Well, I want to uh, thank our brother, Reverend Kenny, for the opportunity to be here this evening, and also the session of the church to come along and, and minister here this week as we deal with this particular theme of highlights of revival in the book of Ezra. Thank you for being here. I trust that you will pray for us and also night by night endeavor to come to the meetings and bring others along with you if you can and pray that God will be with us as we meet around the throne of grace and prayer before the services and then right in the services, evening by evening. We pray that the Lord will be certainly among us in great power and with great blessing. I want to deal with this subject as the Lord has laid it upon my mind and heart, and also because of the need that we desperately have for a moving of God in our own hearts and lives and our churches throughout the land, the need for God to move in revival. And we pray that what we will see this week will certainly stir up our souls to pray to that end, and that the Lord will come and visit us again and pour out His Spirit upon us. So could we turn together, please, to, to Ezra, of course, Ezra chapter 1, and I wish to read this chapter with you just now, Ezra chapter 1, and I trust the Lord will bless the reading of the Word to all of our hearts. So we'll begin at verse number 1. We're going to read down to verse 6, and we pray that the Lord's blessing will be upon the reading of His Word. Ezra chapter 1, and the verse number 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with base, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with base, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of His own Word to our hearts. Now, before we come to consider these verses and the subject tonight, could we just bow in prayer once again and let us look to the Lord for His help. Eternal God and Father, we still ourselves before Thee, we bow down at Thy throne of heavenly grace, in the name of Thy well-beloved Son, 
We thank Thee for the approach that has been made for us into Thy presence through Christ our Redeemer by the merit of His atoning sacrifice. We come, O Lord, to seek Thee now. We thank Thee for the prayer that already has gone up and for the crying to heaven by Thy dear faithful people. And yet, Lord, we pause now to pray, not out of some mere uh, matter of form, but because we feel and sense our need of the anointing of the Spirit. Lord, breathe in me, breathe on this company of people. Remember folk who gather with us online, who watch on, who hear the word of the Lord. We pray that their hearts will be stirred. We've read here the stirring that God gave in those days so long ago as reflected in this book of Ezra. And Lord, we confess tonight that we need that stirring in our own souls. We need that stirring among people around us, that awakening that only the Lord is able to give. And so we cry to Thee to move, to send forth the Holy Ghost. And Lord, in these times, bring a breath from heaven over Thy church and over this province and people. Lord, hear us, we pray. Abide with us now. Give us victory over Satan, over all the opponents that would come against us, even at his instigation. Lord, may thy hand be with us, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and for his sake and for his eternal praise and everlasting glory. Amen and amen. May I say to you this evening that the books of the Bible have a very clear order to them. They are not randomly set down in the Word of God, the very order that you find as you read through the Scriptures is one that is given by God Himself. When we look at what the Savior teaches in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, He gives us a threefold summary of the Old Testament. It is defined in these terms, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is actually the Jewish division of the Old Testament. It would be different in various ways from how our Old Testament is laid out in our English translation. It doesn't mean that there are any differences in terms of the books that are in the translation that we have, but simply that the order is not the same when you come to look at the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. But there the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that the Old Testament falls into this threefold division, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, when you think of the Psalms, you normally think of those 150 chapters that make up what is called the Book of Psalms itself. But the term the Psalms that the Lord uses is a reference to what is called the writings. And the writings were one section of the Old Testament that contained 11 books. And three of those books are the books of Chronicles, because Chronicles were actually one book, that is, First and Second Chronicles in the Hebrew Scriptures. So there are Chronicles, and then there is Ezra, and there is Nehemiah. The Jews grouped these books together as a unit, because in a very real way, in a very specific way, they told one story. That story is comprised, essentially, of what led up to Judah's captivity for 70 years in the city and in the land of Babylon, and then the return out of the land of Babylon. It is especially the return from Babylon that joins Chronicles to Ezra and Nehemiah. If you take the time, whether it's glancing now or when you go home tonight, and read the last two verses of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, that's verses 22 and 23, you will find that they are basically and just about exactly the same as the first two verses of this book of Ezra. And therefore you find the same content indicating that these books present the same story. Now it is important to identify the theme of that story that 
these three books that as chronicles as one book Ezra and Nehemiah actually deliver to us. Quite simply, it is a story of God reviving his work and his people after years of spiritual decline. And when we look at that, we find that God's reviving work had an ultimate purpose, as is discovered when you start to go through Ezra and Nehemiah carefully. Because these two books that follow on from Chronicles reveal that in their times, it is in the times when Zerubbabel, who was one of the main leaders, or Joshua the high priest, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah, in the times when these men lived, God's reviving work was for the purpose of preparing the way for the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, for Christ to be born as is predicted of him in the Old Testament. There must be a return of the Jews out of Babylon, and especially the people of Judah, because the Lord is going to be born of Judah. That's the tribe to which he belonged. It's from that line that he came. But when we read, when we read here, we find that God's people, especially those of Judah, are down there in Babylon. They've been there for 70 years. But God has said that his son will be born from that tribe. He has said also that the Lord will be born in Bethlehem, that he will grow up there and he will minister in that land and he will exercise what he is sent to do as the Messiah. But for that all to happen, the Lord's people must be brought home. They must be brought to their own land. And therefore the books of Ezra and Nehemiah clearly underline this vital facet of all uh, the details that must be fulfilled by the Lord uh, in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ by the coming home of God's people out of the captivity in Babylon where they will have spent 70 years and then they come home to their own land and to the city of Jerusalem and all that happened when they did return to that place. That means that Jesus Christ is the key to all Scripture. We should never forget that. We'll come to read these two books. And when you do so, you will find there are a lot of names, a lot of details, a lot of historical narrative, and so forth. And you might wonder, well, what has this got to do with Christ? But you see, Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks the meaning of God's Word and the message of God's Word. No matter where you read, Jesus Christ is the key to it all. The whole of the Bible is about Him, and therefore taking the Old Testament, we find Christ as we go through from Genesis to Malachi. We find Him predicted, we find Him promised, we find God setting out His great covenant purposes in and through Jesus Christ. The covenant of redemption is really that which, which encapsul is encapsulated in the entire Old Testament Scriptures and on into the New Testament as we see God revealing His purpose of redemption to send the Savior, to bring the Messiah into the world, to save His people from their sins. This is what the Bible is all about. And Ezra and Nehemiah are no different from any other part of Scripture when we come to see and to understand that the Lord Jesus his person and his work are what really is set before us in the Word of God. And that means that since Ezra and Nehemiah reveal God reviving his work, we therefore can conclude that revival is always a Christ-centered, divinely performed work. Revival is for the purpose of focusing attention on Jesus Christ, not in the men who are the instruments of God in times of revival, but rather on the Savior Himself. Again, that's a vital thing to keep in mind when you come to study this book under that line of thought, Revival in Ezra's Times, or Highlights of Revival in the Days of Ezra. 
Since God reviving his cause is the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, the book that follows this one, then it's not surprising that Ezra commences by focusing our minds on the God of revival. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra is the man whose name is given to this book of Scripture. Let me just say at this point, when you open at chapter 1 and start to read, and read it right on through to chapter 6, Ezra hasn't arrived yet in Jerusalem. It's only when you get to chapter 7 that Ezra arrives. And I might say more about that during the course of the week. Because Ezra didn't come to Jerusalem for about 80 years after what you read in chapter 1. So how is it then that he wrote the whole book? And the answer, of course, is, that when he was moved to write this book, God gave him what to write. And even though much had gone by, by the time Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, as I say in chapter 7, yet that did not prevent the Lord, of course, from showing Ezra what had put down. As we read the first six chapters, we have them in our English Bibles. And so, what we're finding, therefore, is that this man Ezra is God's chosen servant to write this book, not only to come himself and do a great work that he actually did do, and we'll see more about that toward the end of the week, but to write this book. The name Ezra signifies the idea of help. In fact, the name Ezra could be translated or could be interpreted as meaning this, God helps. That's the sense of his name, God helps. And on that basis, the name Ezra sets forth the theme of this book. God comes to the help of his people. They are helpless, they are powerless, they're in in bondage in Babylon. There's no way that they can get out of Babylon unless God helps, unless God steps in, unless God arranges things, as we will see tonight to some degree, and moves in such a way that there is this tremendous movement that brings back to Jerusalem and back to Judah that band of people whom we meet in the first part of this book and who are responsible for rebuilding, well, first of all, actually setting up the altar, restoring the worship of God, rebuilding the temple, and then ushering in the whole scene into which Ezra himself steps as you come to chapter 7. God help these people. And brethren and sisters, let that sink into all of our minds tonight. If ever we needed God's help, it is today. In the work of God and the cause of Christ, represented in our own little denomination, oh, we are a poor and needy people. We are bankrupt ourselves. We see it reflected here in this story We're just like these people in so many ways and how we need God to help us. And I trust you'll take that to heart. May that move you to be in these meetings night by night. May it move you to pray. May it move you to cry mightily to God that He will come and He will help us. This is a precious and an encouraging theme that God comes to the help of His people Uh, reviving his own work and his own cause. And when we especially consider the situation in which the Lord's people were found at the times in view in Ezra or in Nehemiah, we can see how precious this theme actually is, that God helps his people. The situation was dismal, and that's not an exaggeration. Jerusalem lay in ruins, The house of God was not to be seen. It had been raised to the ground in the time when the captivity took place. That meant that the divinely ordained worship of God was both impossible and non-existent. I mean, in an open public fashion, in a structured fashion. There was no functioning priesthood. The sacred altar of God was not in its place. The appointed sacrifices were not being offered. And furthermore, in Jerusalem, there was no congregation to assemble. 
That's how dismal the scene actually, the scene actually was. And so the spiritual scene could not have been more hopeless. And that had continued down through all those decades from the time that Nebuchadnezzar came to take away the first band of captives right on through until these people were brought home again. It continued for 70 years. And it was into that situation that the God of Ezra stepped. It wasn't merely that it was into that situation that Ezra and colleagues of his, some before him, some with him, stepped. It was into that scene that God stepped. And he brought the help that Ezra's name signifies. God helps. He did this. He brought this required help, this help, as we've already noticed in the story of the book of Ezra set before us there so clearly. What I want to do, therefore, tonight is simply look with you at the help that God brings when He sends revival. I want to set before you, therefore, several truths about Ezra's God as we find them in this opening section of this wonderful little book. I want us to notice, first of all, God and His promise. Look at verse number 1, because the words of verse 1 refer to a certain promise a promise of God that undergirded everything that began to unfold in the time and view in Ezra and Nehemiah. Notice what it says in verse number 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And then it goes on to tell us what the Lord did. But those words, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, is a reference to a promise. I want you to see this with me. So turn quickly now to the book of Jeremiah. And now don't get confused. Don't wonder, how could this be? Because surely Jeremiah lived long after Ezra. No, he didn't. He lived long before Ezra. That's why I tell you, or I told you at the outset, that the order in our English Bibles, while it's fine, it's not the same as the order in the Hebrew Bible. And when you go to the Hebrew Bible, you find that Jeremiah is mentioned as a book before the book of Ezra. But that's just by the way. Just take that from me. Turn please to Jeremiah chapter 29 and look at verse number 10. And here's how we learn that Jeremiah lived before Ezra or before those days. Jeremiah 29 verse 10 through to verse 14. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you out from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I'll bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Now there's the promise. God and His promise. A promise with regard to the coming back of the captives, the return from Babylon. And concerning that promise, Ezra chapter 1 shows us the Lord beginning to move, to initiate the fulfillment of this promise. God had said that after the 70 years, He would bring His people home. That was a promise from God. And therefore, God's Word is at stake. God's honor is at stake. And so he moves, you see, to fulfill the promise that he had given initially to those people who were, who were carried away out of Jerusalem, out of Judah. It's them, those people whom Jeremiah actually addresses in Jeremiah 29. This is before the captivity. This is before Jerusalem was destroyed. This promise was given by Almighty God. Now, the outworking of this promise began in the place of prayer. Go now, please, to Daniel chapter 9. 
Um, see how all these scriptures are connected. We'll come back to Jeremiah a little uh, later here, but turn now to Daniel chapter 9. And look with me at verse 1. Daniel 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. In verse 2 there that I've just read, we are informed that Daniel, as he read the Word of God, he was reading from Jeremiah. Now, he would have had a scroll in those days. It wasn't a book like you and I have in our hands now in terms of the Bible. It's the same word, but it was in a scroll form. And you can imagine this old man, because Daniel now is over 90 years old. He's one of the captives. He was taken from Jerusalem down to Babylon as a teenager, we believe. And he's there all these years. And no doubt he had read Jeremiah's writings before. But he reads again. You see, you need to read the Bible over and over again. And he reads from Jeremiah. And his mind is taken up with that phrase there, or that phrase he uses, rather, his mind shows what he's taken up with. He says, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years, the number of the years, the years that Israel were to be in captivity. And it goes on to state that in the rest of this second verse of Daniel chapter 9. And when Daniel read this, he began to pray. I'll come back to that a little uh, later here as I keep moving on. So what he found was the specific length of the captivity. Now go back please to Jeremiah. As I said, I want you to go back there to Jeremiah chapter 25 this time and look at verses 11 and 12. These are two very important verses. Jeremiah 25 verse number 11. And it says this, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. It shall come to pass when seventy years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, that is the Babylonian nation, saith the Lord for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. And so notice in these words in Jeremiah 25 that God had also said about the captivity at this stage, the 70 years, but he said something more. He said, I will punish the king of Babylon. Now bring that all together. I haven't time to keep reading from Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, but read those two sections together. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. And what you find is that God told through Jeremiah... And this is what Daniel read, you see, that a number of things were going to happen 70 years after the captivity first occurred. What are those things? There are three of them. Number one, Babylon was to fall. God said that. He said, I will punish this nation. That's in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. He gave that as part of the promise. I'll punish the Babylonians. He meant he would bring them down. And you see, when you read Daniel 9, Babylon has already fallen. Where do you read in Daniel, the book of Daniel, of the fall of Babylon at the end of chapter 6? And so Daniel suddenly realizes that Babylon has fallen. God had already begun to fulfill His promise. He has brought down the Babylonians. And then there was the part of the promise where Israel were said, there were, it was said Israel were going to return out of captivity. And then he also read, if you just look quickly there again at, Daniel, or at Jeremiah 29 and verse number 12, look at these powerful words in that verse. Jeremiah 29 verse 12. You read there, 
this, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. That's part of the promise. Notice this. God said Babylon will be destroyed. God had given the promise that he would bring his people out of captivity. And God also had said beforehand, when all this begins to happen, you are going to go and pray to me. And you see, that's what moved Daniel's heart. Because Daniel wasn't praying until you get to Daniel 9. Babylon has fallen. That was part of the promise. And yet Daniel doesn't start to pray until you get to chapter 9. Why is that? Well, I think it's for one thing to teach you and me that very often we do not catch a glimpse, catch a view in the Word of God as we ought to do in terms of the great promises of God that they're set before us to motivate us, to have us seek Him, to have us call upon Him. Just look at those words once more in Jeremiah 29, 12. God says this, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Verse 13, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity. My dear friend, notice those words. Those are powerful words. And these matters would have come to Daniel's heart with great power. And that's why you read in Daniel 9, 3, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek my prayer and supplications. In other words, Daniel was moved to pray. Now, if you'll turn back now to Ezra, please, and the first chapter, what we're finding is that this promise that God had given the outworking of it began in the place of prayer and began specifically with this man called Daniel. I have no doubt there were others perhaps who prayed with him, but he's the one who is mentioned. He's the one who read the Word. He's the one who saw what God had said. He's the one who laid hold of God then. He took those words very, very personally. He employed the promise. He took the promise to himself. He did not take the attitude that some people take today. Then since God has said this or that or the other thing, well, he will do it. And we don't need to do anything. We can sit back and take it easy. No, Daniel prayed. Let me ask you, my friend, are you praying? Are you laying hold on God? Are you recognizing that God has said certain things in his word that are always true for his church? How do you understand tonight, as we talk about revival, that what God did at Pentecost was not once and for all? What He did there was but the beginning of the fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit. And down through time, He has been pouring out the Spirit again and again and again. I mean in this New Testament age. And He hasn't done with that, let me tell you. That promise still stands good for us today, just as much as for the Christian church in the first century, that God has said it will come to pass in the last days. And the last days are the whole New Testament age. I will pour out my Spirit. Are you praying for that? Because that promise is for now, as it was for the folk in 1859 or Nicholson's campaigns in the 1920s or the Great Reformation. These are all outpourings of the Spirit, and they came and answered a prayer because people laid hold on God. They saw His promise. They didn't neglect it. They didn't say, well, as I said there, there's no need to pray. God has said He'll do this. He'll do it. My friend, we're not fatalists. We believe in taking what God has said and implementing it as He moves upon our hearts and upon our souls, and we lay hold upon God, and God comes and visits us. But there's something else I want you to say about this whole thing, about God and His promise, and how it all came to be fulfilled. I know we've covered a lot of ground there, but there's one other place I want to go at this stage. I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. You see, Zechariah is another of those prophets who lived at the day, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
So go to Zechariah chapter 1 and look at verse number 12. And it says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these three score and ten years? Now there is the very same period, the seventy years of captivity. And we read here of a person, a personality called the angel of the Lord in Zechariah 1 verse 12. I don't really have time to go through this in any detail, but let me just say at this point, this is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Christ. And I could take you through Zechariah 1 and show you that as Zechariah had this vision, he saw a man among the myrtle trees. He saw a man riding on a red horse. And as you read through it very carefully, you will find that this man among the myrtle trees is actually referred to as the Lord. This is Christ. But what do you find Christ doing in verse 12? Christ is praying. And so, what we find is that in the days when the captivity were coming to an end, when the 70 years were coming to a close, and God's promise was going to be fulfilled, not only was Daniel praying, but Christ was praying. And Daniel was entering into Christ's ministry and prayer. You see, the Lord Jesus Yes, I know he was born at a certain point, and we look at him as the prophet, priest, and king, and that's all very true, the mediator of the new covenant. But the Lord Jesus Christ stands forth in Scripture over and over again as the high priest of his people. I mean, in Old Testament days, functioning and ministering on behalf of his people and especially praying for them. And so in Zechariah 1.12, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually praying about the very same issue. And here's the cry, O Lord of hosts, how long? How long? You know those words? The old hymn says, the cry goes up, how long? And here it is. It goes up from Christ. It goes up from the saints. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, you find it there. How long, how long will it be, Lord, until you avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The cry does go up, how long? May it go up from our hearts. May we see God in His promise, in all His glorious covenant promises to revive, to restore, to move upon His work, now, if you look there at Jeremiah 29, or remember what I read there, remember that the Lord said to His people, ye shall go and pray. That's what He said. He says, you shall go and pray. Ah, uh, uh, my dear friend, think about those very words. Go and pray. Are they true in your life? Are you going to pray day by day about the needs in your own life? Are you going to pray about personal matters and family matters and national matters? Are you? Are you looking at God and His Word and getting promises from God that move your heart to go and pray? But are you going to pray? Are you praying about the urgency of seeing sinners turn to Jesus Christ and be brought out of their awful captivity and sin? Are you taking to heart these words, go and pray? Are you taking them to heart with regard to the prayer times in your own church here? Are you faithful in prayer? Or do you miss the prayer meetings? Do you count other things of more important, of being, as being of more importance? The Lord says to His church tonight, the God who gives us promise of His blessing also says, go and pray. And therefore, he's saying to you and me 
in our day and times. Go and pray. Go and seek my face. Brethren and sisters, take that to heart tonight. May that begin as never before. I'm not saying you don't pray in Hillsborough, but I am saying this. We couldn't pray enough. And we need to pray more. And we need to get before God and cry mightily to heaven. So God and His promise. That's the first thing we say about the God of revival. And I trust the Lord will write it upon our hearts. But quickly, go back to Ezra 1. And notice God and His punctuality. God and His punctuality. In verse 1, it says this again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, there's a time reference. And that's written in there by the Lord, by the Spirit, and, and uh, for an important reason. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So, you see, I mentioned a little while ago there that Babylon had already fallen, and then another empire came along or stepped in. They were the ones who overthrew the Babylonians, and that is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. They succeeded the Babylonians as the dominant world power. The Medes and Persians took the kingdom in the year 539 B.C. And they reigned supreme for the next 200 years or thereabouts until Alexander the Great came along. And then he overthrew the Medes and Persians in the year 333 B.C. And so these are all historical facts, even from the times of those uh, men we find secular writings that verify these very dates for us, if we needed that. But the Bible makes it clear that all of this began to happen. Now, initially, the empire of the Medes and Persians was ruled over by two men, Darius, whom we read about there in Daniel, and then this man, Cyrus. Cyrus was Darius's nephew. Darius was a Mede. Cyrus was a Persian. Therefore, the Medes and Persians. Cyrus was commonly known as Cyrus the Great. It's good just to get a few little details as to who this man actually is. When he came to the throne, he implemented what would be called today his foreign policy regarding Babylon and respecting the Jews in Babylon. What was Cyrus's foreign policy regarding the Jews living in Babylon? He told them, you're free to go home. Look at verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath, listen to this, this is remarkable. He hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's, that's marvelous. Because remember, Cyrus is a heathen. Cyrus is a pagan. Cyrus hasn't got saved. In fact, I will show you in a moment or two, he wasn't a saved man at all. But he says here, God has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Then he says in verse 3, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Here is Cyrus's foreign policy. If you want to use that term, there's nothing wrong with it. He was a real emperor. He lived in a certain time frame. He was a man with tremendous power. And he was moved by God to utter this foreign policy decree, you Jews, go home and build the temple in Jerusalem. It's a remarkable thing, but that's precisely what happened. Now remember that Babylon, that is the, uh, the whole setup, it's uh, utterly ruined. Another empire is arising up. That's the Medes and Persians. And that empire, let me tell you, like all other empires in history, they seize everything they can get their hands on. All the assets and all the wealth and all the power that belong to the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, they take it all, all they can get their hands on. The question is, well, 
What about that group of people called Jews? Where are they? Where is the church of God at this time? And the answer really is that they're caught up in the havoc of that period, the chaos that has come in with the fall of Babylon and the taking over by a new empire. The Jews are in the middle of all that. And here's the point. It seems completely unlikely that they'll get their freedom at this time. Because when the Medes and Persians are only taking over, and they might have said, well, we have far more important things to do than think about those Jews. So why did they think about them? And why did Cyrus give this decree? Why did he do all this? If you turn to Jeremiah 29 again, I want you to see this, because to me it is actually fascinating. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. Notice what the Lord had said to the Jews, to the people of Israel, when they went down to Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 4, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, on, sorry, let me read that properly. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice what the Lord told his people to do in Babylon. Verse 5, Build ye houses, Dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit of them, take ye wives, beget sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye be, may be increased there and not diminished. Now listen to this. Seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Now, what is God telling the Jews to do? He's telling them, you're going to Babylon, and you stay there, and you work hard, and you carry on with life, you get married, you have your children, etc., and develop your industries and grow and all that. And he said this, seek the peace of Babylon. Whether I have caused you to be taken captives, pray on to the Lord for it. Do you see something there, my dear friend? Here are God's people. They're in bondage to the Babylonians, and God told His people to behave themselves and pray for the Babylonians. Now, can you imagine that? Pray for the people who slaughtered your fellow Jews. Live in Babylon, work hard, seek for the peace of Babylon. And so what you find there is that the Jews were not lazy. They were very industrious. They were hardworking people. They were skillful. They're displaced. Yes, that's true. They're refugees. They really are. And yet, Cyrus suddenly says, go home. Now, there's the ironic thing. He's saying to people who are seeking for the peace of Babylon and working hard and doing well, go home. They are the very people he needed as he takes over this realm that is focused on Babylon. Now, why did he do that? My friend, here's the answer. Because God is punctual. God is punctual. God's time had come. See, he's the God of revival. And when his time arrived, against all the odds, we might say, against everything that Cyrus would have wanted, to have this people stay there and keep on working and, and seek for the peace of Babylon, he couldn't have had better people. But against all that, he suddenly says, go back to Jerusalem and build the house of God. 
My friend, I've already shown you God and his promise. Now I show you God and his punctuality. Because the time has arrived for God to work. And God is never late. And he's never early. He's always, I say that reverently, God is exactly on time. Deliverance is coming here at the precise time the Lord had decreed. Do you remember uh, the story of, of, of Israel coming out of Egypt? Have you ever noticed the words of Exodus 12, 41? Let me read them to you. They are striking words. It says in verse 40, The sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years Verse 41 of Exodus 12, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years. Now listen to this. Even the selfsame day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. The selfsame day. It wasn't 429 years or 431 years. It was 430 years and the very days mentioned and underlined the selfsame day because God is always on time. God is punctual. You know, the psalmist prays in Psalm 102, verse 13, about the set time to favor Zion. And let me tell you tonight, God has his calendar. God has his diary. Just to use our terms, God, God knows exactly where things are. And there are set times, precise times, when he intervenes, when he begins to work. And he will do what he has determined to do. And no one can stop him. That's the God whom we serve. That's the God to whom we pray. God and His promise. God and His punctuality. Quickly, God and His power. Again in Ezra 1, look at verse 1 again. And here's where you see His power. It says that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled through Jeremiah. That word. Notice what it says then. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Now there's God and his power. Specifically his power over the inner being of Cyrus. There's a striking example of that great statement in in Proverbs 21, verse 1, and I'm sure some of you have prayed it. I'm sure many of you know it. What does it say there? Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. You see, Cyrus is an emperor. Cyrus is a man with tremendous power. Cyrus, in a sense, he can do what he likes. But the point is, he's not outside the control of God. And so for the Lord's promise to be fulfilled and for the Lord's punctuality to be marked, he looks into Cyrus and he stirs his heart. That's all he does. And he moves Cyrus to make this decree. You see, God had given Cyrus this empire. Notice what Cyrus says there in verse 2. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Do you notice that? God had given Cyrus this kingdom. Cyrus realizes it. He's a vivid example of what you read in other places, like Daniel 4.25, something that Nebuchadnezzar himself actually saw at a certain time. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Now, men and women notice that. Now, God gave the Babylonians power over the Jews. Why? Because the Jews sinned. They were taken into Babylon because of their apostasy. 
because of their departure from the, from the law of God, because of their idolatry and their false worship, and God handed them over to chastise them. And when he had finished with his chastisement, and that's what Ezra's all about, now he starts to have mercy on them and bring them home. And so, what I'm saying is, there are times in the history of God's people when very wicked men have been permitted by God to rule over them. And it's always because the Lord is displeased with His people. Or to try His people. It could be one of a number of things. Do you realize what Romans 13 verse 1 says? Do you know that verse? So let me read it to you, because it's always true, and I want you to think about it. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Do you know who was on the throne when Paul wrote that? And remember that the man on the throne is living in Rome, and that's the city where the Romans live themselves, the Roman church, I mean. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic church, by the way. I'm talking about the Christian church in the first century. They're living in Rome. Who's on the throne? Nero. What's Nero doing? He's burning Christians left, right, and center. And now Paul writes to those Christians in that church who have seen their fellow believers slaughtered by Nero, and he says, every one of you be subject to the higher powers. That mustn't have been easy. But what could they do? And you and I today are in a position in the nation that is wholly ungodly. They rule over us. They're passing laws that grieve our hearts. And really, we can do nothing about it. In a physical sense, to, to change it, we can't. And so, what are we to do? We're to cry to God. Because God can deal with people's hearts, the hearts of even the wicked. And he reaches down into to Cyrus's heart, and he changes this man in the sense of having him do what he wants to do. I know our time is gone, but I'd just like to draw your attention to Isaiah 44. And look with me at this, please, because this is exceedingly important. Isaiah 44 as we think about Cyrus and God and His power over Cyrus, Isaiah 44, verse 24. Look at it, please. It says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, He that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that made all things, maketh all things, stretcheth forth the heavens alone, etc., etc. Just keep on going down and get to verse number 28. That saith of Cyrus. Now, this was hundreds of years before Cyrus was even born. But God names him that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Into verse 40, uh, chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass. All of this was said to Cyrus. But look at verse 4. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. Notice that. He's speaking to Cyrus prophetically. He's telling Cyrus, you're my servant. 
Speaking of Cyrus that way. But here's the reason why. For Jacob, my servant's sake. There's God's people. Israel, mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. Listen to this. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. And the end of verse 5, the very same words, though thou hast not known me. Cyrus did not know God. God says it twice. He's a heathen man. He's a pagan man. He's not a saved man, to put it in simple terms. He doesn't know God. But God says, all this time before Cyrus was ever born, he's my servant, and I'm going to use him. And when God used Cyrus, then he set him aside. That's God in his power. And my dear friend, God is still doing that. In Revelation 17, verse 17, and he will do it again, may I say. And that's what I want to show you here as we get near a close of this study tonight. Go to Revelation 17, verse 17. And whatever your view of Revelation 17 might be, one thing we will all agree on is, is a description of the Babylon of the New Testament age the very system that will be on the earth when the Lord comes again. With its seven heads, this whole system here, and its ten horns, which are ten kings, as we read in Revelation 17. But look at verse 17. Here's the fascinating statement that really springs out of this chapter. Look at verse 17. God hath put in their hearts. That's the hearts of the ten horns or the ten kings of the kingdom of Antichrist. God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Ah, my friend, here we see God and his power. Even in the last days, as we call them, before the Lord comes back, when all of this is going on on the face of the earth, God's the one who puts into the hearts of the ten kings to do what he wants to do until his words are fulfilled. And then he will destroy them. And he'll overthrow them. That's God in his power. I trust that tonight the Lord will encourage your hearts. This is the God of revival. This is the God who, whom we serve. The God who reigns, who rules. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? And I pray that what we've seen about the God of revival, his promise, his punctuality, his power, will move your soul to seek with eagerness to know him more, to live for him, to serve him, and to follow him in your own spiritual experience. Do you know this God? Are you saved? Is there someone here tonight and you're yet in your sin? Lost? May you Respond tonight through faith and repentance and come to the blessed Savior and trust Him as your own personal Redeemer. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the blessed Spirit of God will take the Word of God and use it O Lord, apply it to hearts in this place. Help thy children to see in the light of these scriptures who thou art, the God that we serve. May their souls go out after thee eagerly, prayerfully, and cry to thee and live for thee day by day. Bless these meetings. Take us up the holy hill of Zion. And Lord, may you come down in power night by night. 
And may the God of Ezra be glorified. May souls even see their need now and cry to Thee for mercy and be saved. O Lord, answer prayer and part us with Thy blessing. We pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.